Welcome to Awesome Movie Year, the podcast where we take a look back at an awesome year for movies, which is every year. My name is Josh Bell, film critic and writer, and I am joined by my co-host. I'm Jason Harris, filmmaker, comedian. And as you know, last episode, I got a podcast divorce from Josh. But I have an offer for you, Josh. If you can keep a job for six months and not make me watch a bad movie for six months, I will podcast marry you again. Uh, well, that is sweet, but I think you're going to be standing <laughs> alone on the Empire State Building with your microphone because I don't know that I can guarantee <laughs> that I can accomplish that. Will you be getting into a tragic auto accident? No, don't I don't need about? to. I don't need the auto accident. I'm just going to fail on the basic uh, requirements there, I think. <laughs> yeah, I, I think uh, you not recommending a bad movie is a more sure shot than you holding a job for six months. Yeah, well, it depends on how you qualify what holding a job means and uh, whether it's a bad movie by your standards or whose standards exactly. But uh, we'll see how that all goes. Tune uh, well, in in six you know. months to find out. None of us have normal jobs. So. That is true. We're all here podcasting. What is happening? We are talking about the films of 1939 in this season, and today, I believe, as this is being released, it is Valentine's Day, and Jason, you love doing holiday-themed episodes, and so for this season, we thought we would talk about one of the most famous romantic movies of all time in honor of Valentine's Day, and that is Leo McCary's Love Affair, and I don't think we've done a Valentine's Day episode before, actually. No, Josh, as you know, we're cold-hearted sons of bastards, and we normally look away from love. But this year, we're opening ourselves up to new experiences. We are, yeah. Well, I mean, I feel like we've discussed it, again, because you're always trying to, you know, see if we can talk about some holiday-themed things, but it's never quite worked out. So thank goodness we could. Yeah, I keep pushing for that Secretary's Day movie, yeah. but... Uh, well, when we get to whatever your secretary opened, you know, we'll have to make that happen. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we could show that at a screening with a with a group of secretaries and get various opinions on uh, on if they've ever been in experiences like that. Yeah, well, the relationship in this film is a bit more conventional than in Secretary. Look at that guy, Dave. That's a professional transition yeah. right there. Oh, Doing my yeah. best to stay on topic here. Give him a chocolate <laughs> when we talk about uh, love affair. Directed by Leo McCary and co-written as well by Leo McCary, uh, who was even at this time a major director in Hollywood. This was a story idea that he initiated originally, although it went through numerous different iterations before it ended up in its final form with Charles Boyer and Irene Dunn as a couple who meet on an ocean liner, both engaged to other people, fall in love and agree that if they can successfully extricate themselves from their other relationships and maintain a successful independence, I guess, get jobs, have financial stability, they will meet six months later at the top of the Empire State Building to reunite. But things don't go exactly as planned for them when they try to do that. Yeah. I think of, I always think of uh, <laughs> the bit in Hot Tub Time Machine. <laughs> where Clark Gregg is talking to that woman and he's like, Hey, can I have your number? And she's like, no, but, uh, and he's like, well, how can I see you again? And she goes, find me. And he's like, that just sounds exhausting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, you know, this is uh this is pre-internet here. I guess so is hot tub time machine, at least in the, in the time that they travel back to, but uh, it was less, less easy to just find someone back in this day although they like they still do right eventually i mean spoiler i guess but charles boyer just looks her up in the phone book at the end of the movie. i mean maybe it was easier to find someone because you know everyone was out and about socializing i suppose and everyone was listed in the phone book there was just one place to look for people's names but uh it's sort of you know it's more romantic that they make this kind of plan and that they're gonna have this reunion or anticipate having this reunion that of course doesn't quite happen but um that's uh, that's how you did it in 1939, I guess, when you wanted to mm. uh, consummate your love affair. Check out those games. Yeah. So this movie was a hit. It grossed $1.8 million on its budget of $860,000. And it was nominated for six Oscars, although it did not win any of them. But it was nominated for Best Picture, 
Irene Dunn was nominated for Best Actress. Maria Uspenskaya, who plays the uh, grandmother of Charles Boyer's character, was nominated for Best Supporting Actress. Was, and she's lovely. She is lovely. She's such mm-hmm. a such a nice grandmother, so friendly, so sweet. Uh, it was nominated for Best Original Story, which, uh, as we talked about, I think, in a, an episode or two ago, was a separate category from screenplay. And Best Art Direction and Best Original Song for the kind of cloying song that uh, they sing with the little orphan children. Oh, it's not Wishing? Yeah, the yeah. Isn't that, that what it's called? Wishing? Isn't that oh, what the, yeah. yeah. Which became a big hit yeah. after this. I mean, she sings it, but then they, in the nightclub, right? But then they also sing it. No, no. She sings a different song in the nightclub. The wishing no, is I the think song. she sings Wishing in the nightclub, dude. Does she? I thought she sang something else in the nightclub. Hold on. Let me sing it for you. And maybe that'll oh, jog no. your memory. Please. Please. <laughs> please. Oh, That's all I remember. Yeah. No, that wasn't even. Uh, I, I feel like there's there's two songs in this film. One of which. There are. Is, is the song that she sings in the nightclub, and one of which is wishing that they sing with the little orphan kids. All right, whatever, Josh. Back to Leo McCrary. Uh, he does have three Oscars, two for Best Director, The Awful Truth and Going My Way, one for Best Writing for Going My Way, and he also has five other nominations. Yeah, he was, again, at this, uh, Going My Way is later, but uh, The Awful Truth was before this, and he certainly was a major player in Hollywood as, uh, as reflected in all these, uh, in, in the critical response as well. Um, critics were definitely positive about this film. Frank S. Nugent in the New York Times said, The Nuge! The Nuge, yes. <laughs> no <laughs> relation to cat scratch fever for this Nuge. Yeah, uh, we're not going to wango tango with no, uh, Frank No, definitely S. not, definitely not. Frank Nugent said, Leo McCary who directs so well, it is almost antisocial of him not to direct more often, has created another extraordinarily fine film in Love Affair. Like other McCary pictures, this one has the surface appearance of a comedy and the inner strength and poignance of a hauntingly sorrowful romance. As co-author, director, and producer, he must be credited primarily for the film's success, but almost as large a measure of acknowledgement belongs to Irene Dunn and Charles Boyer, for the facility with which they have matched the changes of their script, playing it lightly now, soberly next, but always credibly, always in character, always with a superb utilization of the material at hand. Yeah, so I'll, I have a, lo- a lot of uh, uh, things to discuss just off of that right there, okay. Josh. Um, yeah, so first of all, McCary is like this towering, legendary figure, but I don't think... You know, we talk about him in the same breath as like Kukar or, you know, some of the other directors of that time, Victor Fleming. You know, this was it was kind of a discovery for me just learning about him. And, um, you know, I watched Duck Soup, I, I, the Marx Brothers movie, which I think I've seen before that he also directed. And it, it was just like he's kind of like lost to history, but he's a, he's a real major figure here. Yeah, I feel like some of his movies are still pretty well-known and and well-regarded. I mean, this one, and as we'll maybe talk more about later, the remake that he himself directed, Unaffair to Remember, I think people still watch these films and remember them. Of course, the Marx Brothers and Duck Soup is one of the most famous Marx Brothers films. I feel like The Awful Truth is usually mentioned among great screwball comedies and um, you know, Going My Way and Bells of St. Mary's, which are Bing Crosby films. But there may be more known for those things, oh, it's a screwball comedy, it's a Bing Crosby film, it's a Marx Brothers film, rather than it's a Leo McCary film, and he's not, like you said, as known as a major figure on his own these days. Yeah, but it's strange because Nugent kind of, like all these quotes I found from everyone who's worked with him, just basically kind of reinforces that quote, you know? of that this guy is just a master and he can't make a bad movie, you know? So I, I got a few of those. Uh, Charles Boyer said, any picture that Leo McCary directs is its own guarantee. He can't make a bad picture. And there's a lot of kind of quotes like that, just from everyone who's talking about this guy. It seems like Clark Wales, uh, who is a kind of film reviewer slash historian, recommending a Leo McCary production is something like recommending a million dollars or beauty or a long and happy life. 
any of these things is a very fine thing to have. And the only trouble is that there are not enough of them. Yeah, I mean, I think that certainly every review that I found, even though Charles Boyer and Irene Dunn were certainly like well-known stars at the time, it wasn't like some of the things we've talked about this season, like with John Wayne or Jimmy Stewart, where we know how famous they are now, but they weren't necessarily then. Like these were major stars. And yet Leo McCary like overshadows them as this presence in in Hollywood. And I think at the time he was well known uh, among film fans and film reviewers. And also like that Boyer quote sort of represents that within Hollywood, he was this very beloved, respected figure. Right. It's, you know, it's it's amazing that he was such a towering figure and we don't kind of think of him in the same breath as Ford or, you know, Fleming anymore. Right. No, that's true. So uh, Variety in their unbylined review said, Leo McCary's initial production for RKO as a producer-director offers an entirely new approach to what has become accepted picture technique. Basically, it's the regulation formula of Boy Meets Girl. First half is best described as romantic comedy, while second portion switches to drama with comedy. McCary attacks his subject with slow and deliberate tempo, allowing main story theme to progress in a straight line, while adding many sidelight incidents of drama and comedy along the way. If audiences accept the leisurely tempo maintained throughout, Picture has chance for some holdovers in the keys. Yeah, so that is interesting that um, they blew the opportunity to go with, it's like Boyer meets girl. Oh, but, uh, you know. Yeah. You know, they do often love their their puns there and also uh, no, no definite articles for whatever reason. <laughs> uh, well, on your grammar podcast, you could bring that point Yeah, back well, it's their style. Time. That's the way that it is. So I did feel the same way, tonally. It's like it shifts tones and sometimes it's like, oh, this is great. This is exactly what I want. And then other times I was like, uh, I'm not sure. Why is this like this right? Yeah, I guess. I mean, I, like all these reviews, the ones I'm quoting and other ones that I saw express this sort of like amazement that McCary could mix comedy with drama. <laughs> like it'd been never been done before. And I feel like even though maybe sometimes when we look back at older movies or older time periods, they really are things that haven't been done before that we take for granted now. But I've seen lots of movies from the 1930s and the mix of comedy and drama was very common. So it seemed a little overblown to me that people were amazed. I mean, it is tough to balance those tones often and a lot of movies don't get it right. But um, I feel like this movie... The tones, it was very smooth. It was never like over-the-top, wacky, crazy comedy like The Awful Truth or something or, or The Marx Brothers, like things that McCary has done before. And the drama was never like overwrought melodrama either. It all felt this kind of like gentle, sweet tone throughout to me. I think that's uh, fair. I was waiting for it. Like it, it took a minute for it to ramp up for me. The first 20 minutes, I was like, what, why? why? What is happening? What, what, why am I going to care? And then once we get to Grandma, that sequence was like where I didn't think it was going to mean much, like turn the whole movie around for me. Right. So you, you didn't find the early sort of like bantery courtship between them amusing? It was okay, but maybe it's just that we've, you know, and obviously, like you said, this is 39, but I've seen it in so many other movies done in ways that maybe I liked a little more. And I was also a little unclear on Boyer's character because, you know, he's marrying this heiress and he's on this like, you know, elegant ship uh, for this Atlantic crossing. So I assumed that he had money on his own. So when we got to the part where it was like, if I keep a job for six months, I'll prove to you I'm good enough for you. I was like, wait a second, does he need a job? So that was a little unclear. I think he's kind of uh a gigolo a bit. I mean, I think he has money right. because he he's keeps, a playboy. Yeah, because he keeps dating rich women and, and he's about to marry this heiress, as you said, who's presumably paid for his ocean voyage to come meet her to marry her. So that was kind of the impression that I got. I think you're right. I just wasn't all clear on that. Yeah, no, that's fair. I mean, we have the, the movie opens with those like radio reports, like he's he's a major, you know, society figure or whatever that they're reporting about his various relationships. So I think that's meant to kind of give you an idea of who he is, but it is a little jarring to just drop you into that. 
Right. I kind of like those newsreel reports. Yeah. We need to bring back uh, the days when uh, some some random dude's engagement being broken off is the top story on the front page of the newspaper, right? You don't think that'll happen if uh, Travis Kelsey and Taylor Swift break up? I mean, it'll be big news, but it would, it, would it be like the top story on the front page of the New York Times? I don't think so. Uh, seeing as to where the times has gone in the last few years, I wouldn't be surprised. Uh, well, I, well, I doubt that, but, uh, it probably wasn't really at this in, in 1939 either. I mean, it's for the dramatic purposes in the movie. I just thought that was kind of amusing. What in the whiz bang? Right. So finally <laughs> box office digest also unbylined their review said, Leo McCary has delivered to RKO a great big bundle of money-making entertainment. And to the industry, he has delivered one more argument in proof of the fact that the producer-director combination is the thing that makes pictures. For the public, we should have started this review with raves about Irene Dunn and Charles Boyer. They have never done more delightful work. And to say that they step along in stride, step for step, is a tribute to either one in red-hot competition. We could also mention that the screenplay is an exceptionally intelligent effort. It must be unfortunately recorded that there is a letdown in interest for a half-reel when boy and girl are separated. But McCary's skill in handling individual scenes with the old roach technique carries through this tough spot and on to a grand climax. And the, the old... What is the old... Yeah, I was going to ask uh, you, That's referring to... It's not... It's Roach is capitalized. It's referring to Hal Roach, who is a producer of uh, comedy like uh, two reelers and stuff in this, in the silent era, I believe might've also produced like those Marx brothers movies and stuff. Two real two like two handers. No, no, two, two reelers, short, short films. Okay. Man, Josh is deep cutting me today. Dave. <laughs> I'm pretty so. sure that's right. Mm -hmm. In uh, Tom, Tom Flannery's book, 1939, the year in movies, he wrote Dunn and Boyer generated the most chemistry, charisma and sensuality in Hollywood in 1939 despite 1939 producing the best couples in Clark Gable and Vivian Lee and Gone with the Wind, Lawrence Olivier and Merle Oberon in Wuthering Heights, Leslie Howard and Ingrid Bergman in Intermezzo. So pretty good for them. Yeah, well, we're going to talk about uh, two of those couples later this season, and I guess we can, what? we can compare their chemistry. I don't know. What did you think <laughs> of the chemistry here between Boyer and Dunn? I it really worked for me. I think that it's I understand why you had to break them apart, but I agree that it works way better when they're together. Yeah, I think so too. I mean, I, I the movie is so short. I think we should say, you know, that other review mentions this like slow tempo, but it's an 85 minute movie. Like it doesn't really drag, I don't think. And when they're apart, that's what's important, you know, so that they can kind of have their own emotional journeys and be able to come back together at the end. But yeah, it is more fun. Like I enjoyed that early bantery stuff when they're on the ship and they're getting to know each other. And that's when the movie is at its lightest, I think. And I that you can tell their chemistry. I personally find Charles Boyer a bit like smarmy. And so I think I've enjoyed him when he's playing a bit more of a cad. And so I wasn't maybe as swept up in the romance. And He's like we said, he's this playboy and he kind of uses women for their money, it seems like, in a way, before he meets uh, Terry, Irene Dunn. So I, I, I was not quite fully on board with his like transformation into being, you know, genuinely in love with her or whatever. Sounds like you did not go on an emotional journey. No, not so much. I mean, I did like this, but I feel like I was it was it was a bit at a distance for me rather than, you know, sort of the the emotional engagement with that romance tell us about an emotional journey you've been on recently josh well this podcast is an emotional journey really <laughs> so uh jason had you seen this or any version of this before no this is all new to this guy yeah or any leo i guess just uh just that marx brothers film in terms of leo McCary. yeah like i said a major figure that i have to admit i'm not uh, familiar with so the uh, the Filmerati could come give me a thrashing now, Josh. Yeah. No, that's that's fair. Um, I had not seen this either. I, I've seen, um, I think, two or three McCary films. I've also seen that Marx Brothers film, Duck Soup, although not in quite a while. And as we were talking about it, I think right after you watched it, I was misremembering aspects of it. So it's it's been a while. But uh, I have seen The Awful Truth, which also features Irene Dunn. 
and and is a fun screwball comedy. And I've seen The Bells of St. Mary's and Make Way for Tomorrow, which is another big, I think, a movie that maybe wasn't as well known in the time that it was released, but has become a really well-regarded film over time and is kind of a tearjerker. So I was, you know, somewhat familiar with his work, but I had not seen this or An Affair to Remember, you know, the, the slightly more famous version of this. So glad to check it out. Dave, had you had any uh, experience with this film? Nope, not at all. <laughs> and uh, I was interested to see how it would be. Yeah, I think Dave would like Duck Soup a lot because it is wacky and, you know, a lot of the kind of the comedy that we like where it goes just so far out there. It kind of has that feel to it. Yeah, Dave, have you are have you seen Marx Brothers films? Are you a fan? It seems like something you would enjoy. I probably would, and I'm sure I've seen some of them, like you know, back in high school and and even earlier. But um, I don't remember which one is which. I mean, one of these days, I'm sure I'll dive into some of that stuff. One of these days, maybe in a future episode of ours too. We'll see. Mm-hmm. So yeah. we'll come back and talk more of our general thoughts on Love Affair. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year in this special Valentine's Day episode of our season on the films of 1939. We are talking about the romantic classic, Love Affair. And Jason, I said I wasn't quite as swept up in the romance as I sort of hoped or that the movie aims for me to be. How did you feel about it? I I thought it was good until they were pulled apart and then like kind of the way they kept them apart, which I know it's the, you know, 1939, but basically... They're going to meet six months later at the top of the Empire State Building and she gets hit by a car and they think she'll never walk again. And she says, well, I can't have him see me like that. Like that wouldn't be fair to him. You know, so she kind of um, never she tries to like put it out of her mind. And of course, when they finally meet up, he doesn't care and he's there for her. So I just, you know, by today's standards, that that part just kind of rang a little hollow, but when they're together and they're having fun, it's, it's good. Yeah. I mean, it is good. I agree. Like, even if I wasn't as uh, drawn in, it is good and it's entertaining when they're together. And I definitely agree the way that it treats her disability is certainly not the way we would expect it now. And, and I mean, even in this context, as you said, when they finally reunite at the end of the film, of course, He's not bothered by the fact that she can't walk. I mean, other than hoping that he can, you know, help her or whatever. But the idea that, oh, I can't possibly uh, let him realize that I've been injured this way or whatever. And not only that, you know, at one point, like she talks to her, her very understanding ex-fiance who remains her friend and, you know, says that, oh, there's no, I couldn't even ask him to help me. Or, or, or let him know about what's going on so that he would offer to help me because that somehow would like make me a burden to him or whatever. And it's definitely, you know, it's, it's not the way that we would portray something like that now. I'm curious how it's portrayed in the 1994 version, which is, I mean, it's 30 years ago, but it's still definitely like very different from how you would do it in 39. Yeah, and we talked about an affair to remember, which to me is so odd. I tried to track it down this week, but I couldn't. But it's so strange to me to think that like, like what if they, you know, they remade the movie and they remade it with the same director and it's 20 years later. It's such a strange thing to me, like to think like, would they like, Hey, let's remake, you know, for instance, uh, when Harry met Sally and get awesome movie, your favorite Rob Reiner to direct it with like a new cast, but it's just a remake, you know? Right. I mean, I feel like that, that has happened in the past. I mean, just off the top of my head, like Alfred Hitchcock, made The Man Who Knew Too Much twice in, you know, like 20-ish years apart or something like that. But I feel like now that would happen just if it's like a foreign language film. And there's definitely instances where the same filmmaker will remake their own film in English. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but these little points you're talking about where like she's back hanging out with the ex-fiance and I believe he is, does he, he gets to hang out with his fiance too, right? Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, he does. Uh, yeah, Michelle, he ends up hanging out with her. But it's, 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 there's less of that. He kind of runs into her and they go out on the town and then he, she wants him to kind of stay out and he's like, no, I'm not feeling it. But you get the impression 
that Terry and her ex-fiance have become like buddies and they're spending time together or whatever, which is I, nice. I Yeah, I thought like maybe they were just going back to their old romances. No, I don't think so. Because I mean, at one point, he sort of the the uh, ex-fiance, Terry's ex-fiance makes some sort of hint about like, hey, but what about, you know, me? And she's like, mm, nah. So yeah. I, I think that's the idea that they're, maybe these people are familiar to them or whatever. And again, they're very understanding about having been dumped and are happy to spend time with the, these people. So I, I don't think it's ever meant to be that they're going back to their romances. And of course, one thing about this movie is that they had to be very, very careful because of the Hayes Code. And a lot of things were changed because adultery, it, it could be depicted, but it could only be depicted as like wrong and punished. And I believe the whole idea of Terry being hit by the car and paralyzed came from that uh, necessity of having the characters have to be sort of like punished for cheating and then became an essential element of the story, right? That we always remember that's included in the remakes. And that's what I hate. Crap like that with that stupid code, stupid crap ass crap, Josh. Yeah, it is frustrating. I mean, there are instances in movies where having to get around the code does lead to creativity. It leads to sure. clever dialogue to insinuate things that they couldn't actually say. But yeah, overall, it, the code is is detrimental to creativity and to artistic expression. Absolutely. There's a great line that I think she says in there that I had read was actually uh, a line from an earlier Leo McCary movie. And I just, I remember, I didn't know that at the time, but I love the line where she says, the things we like best are either illegal, immoral, or fattening. Yeah, it is a mm -hmm. great line. And she says it in the context of that she's quoting her father, who she quotes at one other point saying some sort of aphorism. And according, I think it was in Wikipedia, it said that like some audiences kind of groaned at that because they remembered as a reference to this presumably much like broader, more comedic Leo McCary film. But of course, now we watch it, you know, I don't think any of us realized that it was a reference to something else. And so it just sounds like a clever little line in here. But, um, you know, I could see if that was a famous thing, you know, I, I don't know. It's like some famous, you know, if some famous comedy director was making a, you know, a serious movie now and threw in some goofy famous line from one of their other comedies, it might seem awkward. Well, it's from Six of a Kind, a 1934 movie. And the reason I could see audiences, if they knew, getting upset was because W.C. Fields, who said it in that movie, ad-libbed it. But he gave McCary the approval to use it in this film. Right. And I mean, but even, I don't know if it's about that, like, approval, but more that, like, you know, W.C. Fields, obviously <laughs> not... Uh, this uh, romantic lead or whatever to, to take something that's kind of sarcastically delivered by this famous comedian and put it in the mouth of the romantic heroine maybe seemed awkward to people. This was originally set as a 1850s period piece about a French ambassador and the tragic romance that he experiences. Yeah, a lot of changes, I, it seems like, again, in part because of the code that in order to keep the central idea of these people being in other relationships and meeting each other and then, you know, breaking their relationships off, they had to find a way to present it that would be would be acceptable to the code and maybe making it a more contemporary story made it easier for them to do that. And it's interesting because I'll just plug it right now. Our next movie is Rules of the Game, the Renoir movie, and the way that they kind of handle love and adultery and uh, multiple partners is so different than this. Right. Well, again, the code, you know, which didn't exist yeah. in France or, or in any other country at, at this time. Certainly in Europe, there was a lot more freedom to make movies with that kind of subject matter versus in Hollywood, unfortunately. So, Josh, uh, you mentioned your kind of uh, lukewarm reception to Mr. Boyer, but let's talk about Grandma. <laughs> you love Grandma, clearly, right? Maria Uspenskaya, she's she's lovable. And uh, she is lovable, and it's a nice sequence, and you could see the warmth between her and Irene Dunn's character, and that's kind of what did it for me, is like you could see like the growing affection that they all have for each other, all three of them, and I kind of like that. Yeah, I mean, I think you see that warmth between her and Irene Dunn, and also you see that warmth between her and Charles Boyer, her, her grandson. And I think that also helps for kind of what I was saying is that when we meet him, he's known as this playboy. And I mean, he, he picks her up, 
in this this very kind of suave manner. And I mean, is disingenuous in the sense that like he's engaged and it's not like they just accidentally bump into each other and fall in love. Like he's engaged, but he's literally on a boat for eight days and he's like, oh man, I can't spend eight days without hooking up with some lady. Let's see who's around. And he goes and 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 picks her up. So we have this impression of him maybe as this kind of player or whatever. And so seeing him interact with the grandmother, I think softens that impression of him a bit for us. I think so. Like I said, I think the fact that they both kind of the grandma, you see the way they each interact with the grandma and the way that the grandma interacts with each of them. And that could kind of build the love that they have for each other, the Boye and Dunn characters. But I mean, she, you know, you're, you're putting this on Boye. She, she has a fiance. She's on the prowl too. Well, but she's less, I mean, she does have a fiance, but she's less on the prowl in that she's just kind of standing there minding her own business. And he starts talking to her and then says, let's go back to my room or your room or whatever. And so, I mean, he's clearly the initiator of it, but yeah, she could have rebuffed his advances more strongly, I suppose. Um, I, I'm just saying that not that they're unlikable and I think their banter is fun during that sequence, but I just think that to, to sort of make the leap from fun, sexy banter of people who are being kind of naughty and maybe cheating on their fiancés to genuine heartfelt love, having those interactions with the grandma who's so like wonderful and pure, you know, it helps. I agree with you, Josh, you know, it goes from this tawdry real toe up from the flow up into this wonderful, you know, storybook romance. Yeah, I guess. I mean, it's not tawdry per se early on. I mean, you know, it can't be really obviously with the code, but it it, it does have this more sense of kind of naughtiness and maybe what people expected a bit more from McCary because he's known for these screwball comedies. And they reference it. The characters reference it. Oh, everyone's watching us. We shouldn't be eating together or hang out together. And they always end up back together, don't they? Right. Yeah. I mean, there's a point where some photographer is going to take a picture of them and Charles Boyer, like, steals the film and throws it overboard and things like that. They know the how it would be seen by people, especially because he is, like, this famous playboy and is about to get married to this famous heiress and they don't want people knowing. So yeah, they, they, they understand that what they're doing is sort of perceived as wrong, but it, they can't, they can't help falling in love. Mm, someone should put that into a song lyric. Um, you ever uh, know any heiresses? Um, maybe, I mean, I, you know, you and I both, we went to high school with some wealthy people. I don't know if any of them would qualify as heiresses. Maybe heirs. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Something like that. But uh, she doesn't really, I feel like, um, you know, Terry's fiance, who is uh, some sort of businessman, um, he he gets a bit more screen time and they show how supportive he is of her or whatever. But the heiress doesn't get nearly as much uh, of a presence, as, even when she kind of oh. hooks back up with Michelle. She has a family fortune to take care of, Josh. I don't think she's really taking care of it, per se. Um, well, I'm just assuming these things then. How about that? Yeah, I guess so. So we have to talk about my favorite part of the movie. And I, I thought Dave probably liked it too. When, uh, Irene Dunn, when Terry's character gets this gig at the nightclub in Philadelphia and she goes to like a boarding house and, uh, the landlady is so funny to me. She just comes in and she's like, you know, this immigrant landlady and she's talking and then she just, no matter what she's saying, she's like, you know, maybe it's better that you don't have a, a lover because then you'll have kids and your kids will end up ashamed of you. And it always comes back to the kids being ashamed of her. And I was like laughing out loud because it just seemed to come out of nowhere each time. And I was just like, uh, I love this character. Yeah, she's very entertaining. And she really just shows up in that one scene. And uh, she's the actress is uncredited. Her name is uh, I'll probably mispronounce Farika or Freik Boros, who is yeah. uh, she's actually a, a Hungarian actress. And yeah, I mean, I think they they throw in that that comedy throughout the film, even as it gets more serious. And you know, it's another kind of contrast of of people's relationships. You know, you have the grandma who obviously had this great long marriage with her late husband, who was a diplomat, and you know, the heiress 
who is kind of presumably when Michelle breaks it off with them, she's she's on to the next dude, I would imagine pretty quickly. She's a, you know, party girl or whatever. So all these people around them showing different different examples of kinds of relationships. It's just strange that no matter what uh, situation this woman got into, it ended with her kids being ashamed of her. <laughs> and it's unclear why the kids are ashamed of her exactly. <laughs> and she brings it up in like such a jovial manner, like it, it's probably for the best because your kids will end up ashamed of you. <laughs> right. Okay. Have a nice cup of tea and good night. I mean, it is right because when 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 Terry says, "Oh, how are you doing?" or something like that, and she's like, "Oh, well, uh, I don't make any money, and my husband is a bum, and my kids are ashamed of me, but I'm great." <laughs> <laughs> Dave, mark it down. We just got an impression from Josh, and it, it, I loved it. Great. It made me very happy as well. Thank so, you. Yeah, so, were, were, was that a, a favorite moment for you too, Dave? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, one of my one of the things I really liked about the movie was all of the mixed tones. You brought it up in some of those reviews earlier. It, it's not just comedy and drama. It's like different kinds of comedy, from the wacky stuff like that character to you know more slick, you know, romantic comedy kind of you know material. It's kind of all over the place, and I like that about it. Yeah, I mean, it is kind of all over the place, but like I said, I feel like it does smoothly. It doesn't feel like it's just like jarringly jumping from one thing to no. another. You know, you can get those yeah. sentimental moments, and they feel earned. I feel like, again, even if I wasn't as swept up in the romance, it wasn't that I didn't buy it. And, and I think when you get to the point where they're feeling this longing for each other or whatever, when they're apart, or they're tortured over the idea that that the other person might not feel the same way that they do or whatever. I, I think it, it came across as genuine. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Josh, you know, with the different tones, I do agree that everything's earned. I just felt like there were different levels of enjoyment. Like, you know, sometimes that happens with, the, with tonal shifts is like it either works and elevates or it kind of stops the momentum. And I felt like a few times the momentum stopped here, but overall, uh, you know, the lead performances are so strong, it's tough not to go on the ride with them or the crossing with them. Yes. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I I don't disagree that the momentum does slow. And, and like I was saying before, it's a short movie, so it's not, it doesn't take forever. Like the sequence or whatever, the section of the film where they're separated is not that long, but it does feel like, okay, we know they're going to get back together. Let's just kind of like get around to that or let's, you get impatient maybe with the characters, especially as we were saying earlier, the idea of Terry, like, oh, I can't possibly tell him what's going on with me. Like, no, come on. He loves you. You know, you can tell him. And you maybe get a little impatient with that. Yeah. The thing is with that, that aspect of it, it did kind of, uh, you know, diminish the momentum at the same time that they did a good job during that sequence of like building her character finding a new career and seeing how other people, the kids, the, the orphans, there's always orphans, Josh, yeah. uh, you know, how they relate to her and admire her, you know? So, um, all that stuff, it's overall, like, it's, it's definitely one to watch. And like, you know, I always talk about the before series. I love link letter. You could see like imprints of that on this. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, this is obviously mm-hmm. a hugely influential film for romances going forward for the next several decades. And, uh, so did, did you like the orphans? What did you think of the orphans, Jason? They need a home, Josh. They do. They need a home. Did you like their singing? If you two don't get married, the orphanage will close. So <laughs> uh, they were fine. You know, they're, they're very minor in this whole, in the whole scheme of things. You know, you could toss them aside like their parents did. Yeah, <laughs> you, you could. I, I feel like I had maybe a little more, a little more of the orphans than I needed. But you're right. It is nice to show her kind of like, finding a position and, you know, she finds fulfillment in, in teaching music to these orphans and, you know, seems happy. And, and Michelle as well, when he becomes, you know, he returns to his passion for painting and he becomes successful there, you get the sense that they, they did do what they set out to do, which was to find like actual fulfillment from their own independence before they got back together. Yeah. It all does feel earned. At the same time, like if you get swept up in such a love affair, uh, you would think you'd be like, hey, we're going to stick together and I'm going to get this job and I'm going to support you and you're going to be my teammate and all this. Not like, hey, I'm going to go spend six months torturing myself without you just to prove to you that I'm worth your time and effort. Right. I mean, I feel like it was not as it was just as much about proving to themselves that they were worthy of it as it was about proving to the other person. But I don't see why you have to 
be a part to prove that to yeah. yourself. I don't know. I mean, I guess maybe, you know, again, it's partly, I think, maybe even the code that they had to, they had to fully extricate themselves from being engaged before they could really be together so that it would right. satisfy that those requirements. Sense. Yeah. So. Uh, it sounds like a terrible studio note. Uh, should we rate it, Josh? Yeah, yeah. Five Atlantic crossings? Sure. <laughs> That's a long time. You're going to be on that boat a long <laughs> time with five of those. Uh, yeah, and if the waters are choppy, you're in trouble. I gave it three. Uh, you should watch the movie. Uh, it's good. Yeah, it's good. I also give it three uh, Atlantic crossings. Like I said, it wasn't... I, I I found it pleasant. I didn't necessarily get swept up in it, but it's certainly enjoyable to watch. Dave, how would you rate this? Sounds like, Josh, you had a like effect. I, very, very much mm. so, yes. I gave it three and a half, which I guess means that the ship sank. Oh, yeah. Uh, it only got halfway across. <laughs> yeah. So. Ah, well, that's okay. They were, mm, they were always turn around. in each other's yeah, arms, yeah. like Rose and whatever. Jack, is that from Titanic? Yeah. yeah. I think so. Yeah. So we'll come back and talk about the legacy of Love Affair. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this special Valentine's Day episode of our season on the films of 1939, we are talking about Leo McCary's romantic classic, Love Affair. And as we've mentioned multiple times already, McCary himself remade this film in 1957 under the title An Affair to Remember with Cary Grant and Deborah Kerr. And that movie has kind of overshadowed this one in terms of its popularity. It's the one I think more people end up watching and are familiar with. Um, it's had its own big legacy, uh, mainly in like Sleepless in Seattle, where the characters watch it they specifically reference it, and then that movie ends itself with its own meeting at the top of the Empire State Building, which the characters are engaged in because they've watched An Affair to Remember. Spoiler alert, the Empire State Building, not in Seattle. <laughs> that, that is true. That's uh, Only Tom Hanks' character is in Seattle. That's, that's sort of the, the whole deal with that movie. It's, uh, anyway. Uh, I, I hear his... Uh, not doing well with the sleeping. Yeah, it is true. Yeah, Jason has not mm. seen Sleepless in Seattle. <laughs> <laughs> I feel uh, I feel like I've done this uh, pretty well. The 94 movie, I tried to track that down. That's tough to find also. That's with Warren Beatty and Annette Bening, right? Yeah, they remade it under the original title, Love Affair in 94, directed by Glenn Gordon Karen, who's best known as the creator of Moonlighting. So that was not necessarily... Uh, well regarded, but uh, it does feature, I think, Catherine Hepburn's final performance. So it does. That You're is right. that so, is something. Um, did you watch uh, any of the Indian remakes? No, adaptations? no, I have not. There are Indian versions of this film from both 1965 and 1999. That one being, I think, a direct remake of the first Indian version. So, you know, it's like I said, it's interesting that the whole like injury and paralysis aspect of this was something that they put in essentially to satisfy the production code and that became this essential element of the story that carries over into other versions and is largely what people remember about it. I'd really like to see a Blaffair to Remember starring Tracy. <laughs> yes, I was going to bring Classic. that up. Yeah, from 30 Rock, of course. <laughs> <laughs> and that is the remake that Tracy Jordan starred in. Yeah, well, uh, someday, you know, we'll get that. Hey, Josh, have you ever seen the other movies that Boyer and Dunn starred in uh, when Tomorrow Comes, I believe you mentioned, and Together Again? Uh, no, I have not. Um, those are less familiar. And I, I mentioned, um, it was a Leo McCary movie that I mentioned, Make Way for Tomorrow, which is a different movie. But no, I haven't seen those, but I guess they were, you know, because of their pairing here, that was so successful and they had that chemistry and also they got along in real life. They made a couple more movies together and those are not nearly as well known, but I, you know, sure. I'd check them out. Oh, how benevolent of you. Thank you. Ugh. Yes. I'll do that for those people. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, we've talked a lot about McCary's career as well. He was a, a, a huge Hollywood figure at this point. This was a later point in his career, but he continued to be big in Hollywood uh, going my way. As we said, was another, highly awarded film of his starring Bing Crosby. And I've seen the sequel to that, The Bells of St. Mary's, which uh, is a movie about uh, trying to save an orphanage from being shut down. That's literally actually what it's about. And uh, it. featuring little kids. And it's a sort of a, it's a 
known as a Christmas movie, even though only a very small portion of it takes place at Christmas, but it does feature like a, a Christmas pageant put on by the orphans that McCary had the child actors improvise, which is sort of uh, amusingly odd to watch. It's just hard for me to think of Bing Crosby in Christmas and not think of David Bowie going, He's on earth. Uh, is that a David Bowie impression? Is that what that's meant to be? Do you know the you know the little? I, no, I know that. I just does not really that. sound like David Bowie there. But uh, I can't do it. But I, it's just such a strange duet. It uh, is. Look up. You've never seen Little Drummer Boy with Bing Crosby and David Bowie. Look that up. Yeah, Josh. Here's a fact that I found to be just bonkers because of you know we're talking about how as we always say like hey they made a hundred movies together in four years right right. This, um, the filming of this took place in the fall of 1938 and the rough cut was screened in January of 1939. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, they did things more quickly back in the day. Um, and I Efficiency, think buddy. even so this one, it didn't, it, it, it like went over in terms of its uh, shooting schedule or something. So even that they still turned it around that quickly. McCary worked until, uh, 1962 was his final film called Satan Never Sleeps. Irene Dunn, uh, she only worked also until 1962, although she lived for many more years after that. Uh, she remained a comedy star in the 50s, last made a film in 1952, and then was on TV for a bit. But ultimately, she decided to retire. She was involved in a lot of humanitarian and charity efforts. And for us here in Vegas, I found this fascinating. She and her husband were involved in a lot of real estate investments later in her life, including the Huntridge Theater here in Las Vegas, which they co-owned uh, through the Huntridge Theater Company starting in 1951. Man, I wish they would buy it back right now. Yeah, I don't think um, they're really yeah. around to do that. We're, 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 we're getting finally, I feel like this is a tangent, but whoever owns the Huntridge right now, aren't they? They're really actually putting the effort into it to revive it. I think it. so. It's Jay Dapper, I think. Jay so, Dapper you know. carrying on the legacy of Irene Dunn. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, Irene Dunn was nominated five times for Best Actress. So pretty good. Cimarron, Theodora Goes Wild, The Awful Truth. Uh, and like we said, Love Affair. And I remember. Yeah. Uh, oh. The Awful Truth. And uh, Theodora Goes Wild is also a fun kind of screwball romantic comedy that she's good in. Charles Boyer had four Oscar nods of his own. And uh, other than Gaslight, what do you like him in, Josh? Uh, I really like Clooney Brown, which is Ernst Lubitsch's final film and is another romance uh, where he is the romantic lead uh, alongside Jennifer Jones, who's really, really good in that film. But I feel like it plays more into, like I said, my impression of him as being somewhat smarmy. And that's part of the charm of that movie is that he is this sort of snooty intellectual that uh, is amused by her character who is uh, a really, really into plumbing. <laughs> and that's mm. like not a euphemism. She just loves plumbing. And it's a very weird, like fun comedy uh, about the British uh, kind of class system or whatever. So I, that's an underrated movie. But Gaslight is great. Um, and, and that also plays into the idea of him being kind of disingenuous or whatever, where, of course, he is, uh, you know, gaslighting, as we now say, based on that film, his wife into thinking that she's crazy. Maybe she was crazy, Josh. Maybe she gaslit herself. Mm, no, nah, I think you should maybe watch that movie. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Josh, Maurice Moscovich, who played the art dealer as Maurice Colbert. Uh, this is interesting. He was a big star in Yiddish theater. He was in The Great Dictator. And then they cast him in this film called Dance Girl Dance. But he died uh, during prep and they rewrote the role for Maria Ospinskaya. Oh, yeah. So uh, she is she is very uh, distinctive here. She had a, a fairly short career. I mean, seemed like she started playing these, these old lady roles later in her life. But she did uh, appear in a bunch more movies until 1949, which is when she died. And I always remember her as the, the gypsy who curses the wolfman in, in the wolfman and then later shows up in uh, Frankenstein meets the wolfman. So mm. that, uh, which I had watched not that long ago. And I was like, oh yeah, there, I, that's where I know her from. She's the gypsy lady who, from the wolfman. Of this film, she said that it was an atmosphere of work that is inspirational. Actors, electricians, and cameramen loved their work and did not want to break away from that atmosphere. So more craze for McCary. He seems to be a favorite of everyone. Yeah, yeah. He, uh, I mean, I think that's the thing that we were talking about 
is because at the time, you know, he was just beloved by fellow people in Hollywood. And, you know, after that is over, maybe his legacy hasn't been as strong, but he's obviously made a lot of classic films, including this one. We're, we're bringing it back. He's the Rob Ryder of the 1930s. Yeah, us. we'll see if we can get some more of his films when we further explore the 1930s in our next several seasons, as we are obviously <laughs> planning to do. <laughs> so uh, right. anything else you want to say about uh, the legacy of this film, Jason? Josh, I said everything. Okay, well, I just was <laughs> checking. I guess that that is it. That's Love Affair, and that's this episode of Awesome Movie Year. You can send us love notes online and on social media. That's right. Cross over to our social media, which is awesomemovieyear.com. Not social media, but that's a website. Awesome Movie Year on Facebook and Instagram. Awesome Movie Pod on dumpster fire i'm jason harris comedy or jay harris comedy on all the socials of course go for jason on Leatherboxd. um some old stuff for me is at joshbellhateseverything.com you can find me at joshbellhateseverything on facebook and at signal bleed on uh, that dumpster fire or twitter or whatever as well as at signal bleed on blue sky and on letterboxd and if you are on letterboxd and you watch one of our films Tag Awesome Movie Year in your review. We'd love to know what you thought of the movies that we watch. And you can listen to our producer, David Rosen's awesome podcast, Piecing It Together. Check out Piecing It Together wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow us on social media at PiecingPod and join our Facebook group, Popcorn and Puzzle Pieces. And Jason, you mentioned it already, but what are we doing in our next episode? It's a foreign film episode, Josh, but uh, even if it wasn't, we should be covering this movie for some reason, any reason, because it's an all-timer. It's uh, Jean Renoir's The Rules of the Game. So tune in next time for The Rules of the Game, and thanks for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Thank you for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Make sure to follow Awesome Movie Year on Facebook, at Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter, and at Awesome Movie Year on Instagram. And if you like the show, review us and rate us with five stars on Apple Podcasts. An All Points West production, produced by David Rosen in Las Vegas. Or they're tortured over the idea that that the other person might not feel the same way that they do or whatever. I, I think it, it came across as genuine. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Jason, are you doing something? I'm listening to you. <laughs> oh, okay. You're I'm looking off. I thought you were like trying to like type or something or whatever. You're like looking over to the side there. Oh. No, I mean, I was listening to you, but no, I'll respond. No, 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 that's fine. That's fine. I just thought if you were, if you had something to take care of, we could pause. No, Dave, leave this all in. Uh <laughs>